Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. Hi there. Well, evening, everyone. I'm Will Hurst uh, of the Architects Journal, and uh, very pleased to be chairing this debate tonight. Really, I am hoping to say very little, um, and that all you guys will chip in and ask questions uh, whenever you feel like it. Um, it's the seventh Negroni talk, and as you can see, it's on dishonesty and architecture. Um, I looked up, I googled the title, Thick as a Brick, earlier this afternoon and found out that it's actually a 1972 album by the Blackpool rock group Jethro Tull. So I'm not sure if that's going to come into the conversation, but I think obviously when architects think about honesty and dishonesty in architecture, they often think about materials and structural form and uh, decoration and things like that and whether the building is doing what it appears to be doing. But I think this conversation could go in all kinds of different directions and kind of talk about CGIs and the planning process and community consultation and procurement and all sorts of things we could be talking about that involve honesty and architects. Um, so to tell you who we've got tonight, as you can see, we've got a great group of people, all architects tonight. Uh, we've got Joe Cowan of Joe Cowan Architects, Amin Taha of Group Work and Amin Taha, uh, Sean Griffiths, the architect and academic who's best known for, I suppose, fashion architecture taste, as many of you know, fat, um, and Simon Alford of AHMM. So I think I'm going to go in the order that everyone is on the poster. So I'm going to hand over. Everyone's going to talk for five minutes or less, probably maybe less, about what they think of this topic. So I'm going to start with Amin. I can't see him. He's over there somewhere. Yeah, all right. Over to you, Amin. Sorry, I didn't realize I was actually making a speech. <laughs> it could be short. <laughs> okay. I did not read the email. <laughs> I thought I was just going to argue counter. All right. We can start with something No, else. no, 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 no. Let me, let me start. I'm, I'm glad that you've already um, uh, mentioned that um, perhaps we should be getting beyond the idea of honesty uh, with regards to materials, uh, structure, form, because that's, that's an argument or a debate that's... It's sort of perennial because it's something that's occurred ancient times, Renaissance period, uh, uh, Victorian period, neoclassical period, and obviously mid-20th century onwards. Uh, but I, I suspect that a lot of us are still slightly stuck on that idea that somehow honesty is to do with materials. And I think that's partly because, I'd like to think it's partly because uh, it's what Semper, even 100 years ago, was suggesting 
is that we've lost, as architects, we've lost the idea or understanding of how materials, the property materials being the vocabulary, the basic vocabulary for any architecture. So once you decide or once you have knowledge of that vocabulary, you can then decide afterwards what your direction should be. And that might be deliberately to be dishonest, uh, but as long as you're consistent with that initial idea, and we can pull through that, that line in the legibility of how you finish that building, how you've constructed it, etc. Uh, then there's honesty even in that dishonesty. Is that okay as a starting point? That's absolutely fine, thanks. I All mean. Right. <laughs> so, on to Joe Cowan next, please. Hello, everyone. Um, I also didn't know it was actually a speech. <laughs> I thought it was a um, rebuttal. Um, and on the way here in the cab, I also Googled honesty and architecture. And of course, facadism and, you know, Rogers and bearing the structures there. But if I have to think about the hardest thing as an architect to remain honest um, to all the different stakeholders, I think it's probably really the impossible and undeliverable ability to the inability to deliver the vision that you originally have. Um, and that's because of the number of people, stakeholders, whether it's planning, whether it's developers, whether it's the funder, whether it's the community. It's very, very difficult to ultimately, certainly on a large scale, on a place-making scale, to deliver that original vision. Um, we have to sell something on behalf of our clients, developers, who are usually, but not always, incentivized incentivized really by the, the end value of a development or that for sale value. And actually what the stakeholders want, the community wants, your planners want, is something that delivers the architect's vision, that delivers a coherence and a cohesiveness that goes beyond that. And we are often making promises, I certainly am, regularly to planners um, on schemes. And knowing that during the design process and, and during the delivery process, so much of that will be whittled away. So much of that will be stripped back. So much will go back to the GLA for another reviability. And so often what we paint as a picture and what we start at isn't necessarily what we end at. And that's not necessarily through our undoing. Um, it's about that careful balance in between all those major stakeholders. And as architects, we are visionary. We, we are creative. We are... You know, we are unlike the rest of the real estate industry in that we are actually trying to create beautiful things and amazing spaces, but don't always understand or have the ability to deliver that. And I think honesty in architecture has got to be about re-striking that balance going forward. We need to think like all of the stakeholders, and we need to put that together. We, we as architects are that pivotal key that interlocks all of those different parts of, of the delivery of a scheme. And... We need to rethink, as opposed to simply sort of react against, how, how do we paint that, that cycle and that journey? Um, and how do we be more honest with ultimately the people who are going to live in our buildings or, or, or live around them or, or use them? Um, so that, for me, is the biggest challenge that I'm facing as, you know, honesty in architecture. Sorry, that wasn't very well prepared, but anyway. Well, that was great if that was off the cuff. Thanks, Jay. Um, Simon. Uh, thanks. I was caught by the poster and the, uh, the kind of idea about architecture and honesty and we're the moral guardians of the world. And that kind of thing always worries me a great deal. Um, the poster kind of is actually very clever. It kind of shows you stretch a bond, which is very, very honest. It's an expression of a kind of architectural misery, 
generated by a cavity. Um, and then we go dishonest sometimes. We split headers and we make garden wall bonds, out of that kind of thing. That's all a bit, a bit stupid and dishonest, but it kind of brings some kind of pleasure aesthetically. Then there's this mirror, which talks about, I don't know, surrealism, Magritte, kind of an idea of contrast. In there is a Villa Savoir. Architects love rules. So, you know, Corb came up with five ideas, free plan, uh, free elevation, roof gardens, and horizontal windows. Um, that didn't seem to be much of an idea in his five-point plan. Um, and it was this idea of freedom in architecture actually is quite a prob problematic thing. And picking up what Joe was saying, I think it's actually quite tricky as architects when we think we're the honest brokers between um, the people and our clients. I think, if we're honest, we work for our clients and we may have a moral conscience, you may not have a moral conscience, you may be a good designer without a moral conscience and might produce better buildings than a bad designer with a moral conscience. And I think with architectures, the, uh, the, the major dishonesty in architecture is when people start talking about how they are some kind of visionary bridge between a better future and the past. I think we're creative, I think we have something to offer, um, but I think we should be quite wary, um, you know, dishonesty, um, the, the other one that I really hate is materiality, which seems to be a word that, you know, as, as Francis Goulding said, materials are materials. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a movement. Um, so I just think uh, in architecture, we should be a bit more honest about what we're doing and who we're doing it for and how much we're doing it for ourselves. I don't mean that to condemn us, but I think that might make us rather better designers. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Sean. Thank you. Um, um, I did read the email uh, and knew I was supposed to say something. So, um, and I'm an academic, so I actually wrote something down. Um, <laughs> terribly sorry. <laughs> um, architects are fucking liars. <laughs> they lie in PR. They lie in planning documents. They lie to win the job, to convince the client, to impress their peers, to sound cleverer than they are, and most of all, to make out they are doing much better than they actually are. None of this has anything to do with style. The tackiest postmodernism is neither more or less honest or authentic than the bricky tectonic stuff. I agree with Simon about that. It is not a matter of aesthetics, which is a relief given that we are all liars and bullshitters. It is ultimately a matter of meaning. James Sterling once said to never talk to your client about architecture. And I think that what he meant by that is to never talk to your client about the meaning of architecture. And if that is what he meant, I think it should apply to everyone, not just clients. Here are some examples of architects talking about meaning in architecture. Norman Foster tells us that his buildings are not for, but about people. Stephen Hall tells us that his university campus in Dublin is a reference to 
the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland, which is 200 miles away from Dublin and not even in the same country. Thomas Heatherwick tells us that his new fabulous monument to neoliberalism in Hudson's Yard, New York, is about bringing people together. Good old Tom. <laughs> and my good friend Amin Tahar, who spoke earlier, recently told us in Will's um, uh, fine organ, the, the um, Architects Journal, that architects are storytellers. And he is, of course, correct. If he means that we talk a lot of old shit. <laughs> As I wrote in a recent article in Dezine, all meanings are fictions and therefore lies. This is because concepts, which would include meanings that subjective human minds impose onto objects, and objects, which by definition, the, name, the clue is in the name, exist in an objective world, completely independent of the human mind, are entirely different things. A meaning exists only in the mind and not in the object. As such, objects are open to the imposition of any meaning at all. So a Gothic building, for example, means something completely different today than it did to a medieval God-fearing Christian. So this means that meanings are actually pretty meaningless. Fictive meaning is a hangover from religion. Religion once gave our lives meaning. But the potency of reason has long put religion to the sword. And instead of celebrating this as an achievement of intellectual maturity, we have started to rely on these terrible things that architects seem to talk about a lot these days. Metaphor, narrative, language. All things that are completely stolen, of course, from linguistics and have nothing whatsoever to do with objects. So why does this matter? It's my contention that we need to find a way to talk about things, objects. So one uh, way of looking at this is, for example, thinking about the way an object is made rather than the narrative that it is about. So Marx's analysis of the object as an, the outcome of a given mode of production, for example, as the product of labor, of the machine, of a particular form of political economy, an analysis which cuts through the mystification and pseudo-poetic narrative that veils the true meaning of the object is one possible way of doing this. And the recent emergence of the ultimate architectural commodity in the form of Thomas Heatherwick's empty vessel <laughs> certainly provides an ideal subject for such an analysis. On the other hand, in a time of fake news, alternative facts, and PR narratives, a recognition of and re-engagement with the idea of truth has perhaps never been more urgent. So should architecture enter into a new alliance with dishonesty? 
I don't think it has much to do with the thickness of a brick, to be quite honest. And my answer to that is absolutely not. Can we stop talking about narratives, metaphors, and all that crap, and start talking about objects? Thank you. Thank you, Sean. So I'm not sure if the rest of the panel are going to agree that architects are liars, um, but would, I, I guess I might throw this back to Simon, would you say, Simon, that being honest as an architect has become more difficult? I'm thinking back over several decades where architects used to work primarily for the public sector, and I think that... Uh, and it doesn't just go for architects, it goes for lots of others, that this has become more and more complex in an era of uh, globalisation. You know, we're surrounded by post-truth politics. That seems to affect every walk of life, not just journalism, but um, all kinds of communication. So do you think, would you agree with me that, that honesty is, is harder to attain than in a more simple world several decades ago. What value is honesty in architecture? Is that honesty in your behavior? So I was brought up in the 60s in a world of architecture surrounded by architects who were committed, Marxists, committed to the GLC, um, designing amazing social housing projects, um, totally socially committed, and produced some terrible, terrible places. Um, so I think in a sense, you know, it's that line from the third man about, you know, Switzerland, 500 years of you know, cuckoo clocks and happiness, and the Renaissance, 30 years of murder and the greatest outbreak of kind of artistic creativity ever known. As someone interested in architecture, um, I'm interested in the uh, personality of the author of the project. Um, I would tend to judge their work as I see it successful in architectural terms. Those could be social terms, those could be aesthetic terms, those could be the terms of an object. But it's a strange idea that because you're passionate or because you're honest, you must be doing good. You can be dishonest and make some great stuff. I remember, I think, Sean, when you left Robert Venturi, I think his parting line to you, I think he was being honest here, was keep up the bad work, wasn't it? Um, and I think, in a sense, that's one of the confusions of architecture, that we, we are, most people are committed to the subject of architecture, perhaps more than they're committed to the social programs that, might, that it might serve. And then we get confused between our commitment to architecture and a social programme. And then we get confused between the, um, the, the validity of what we produce just because we, we're honest or we care. So I'd go for dishonesty producing something of quality over a kind of um, humble, honest toil. So part of the answer is to accept the mantle of business person rather than saying, well, I'm talking, I guess, maybe I'll direct this at Amin, but, you know, the, the, there seems to me a bit of a conflict sometimes between architects' uh, reason for getting into the profession and uh, a desire on many of, uh, by many of them to do good in the world, but also to actually earn money in a, in a capitalist society, which is becoming more unequal, I would say, um, you know, that seems to me a source of that kind of tension. And it might be simpler if they just said, well, I'm an architect, I'm in the service industry, I'm serving my client, that is my primary motivation and um, that's what I'm about. Would you 
agree with that. I mean, uh, yeah. Sorry, I was nodding my head. I think that probably if we dispense with the idea of honesty and call it authentic, yeah. so there are plenty of nasty. Well, we might some of us might decide they're nasty, but let's call them. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of another word apart from rapacious. Uh, developers who are simply out to get as much as they can and not leave any f literally built form legacy or even quality interiors and the rest of it. Now, they're authentic in that they're, that's their ambition and they see it through. Um, where I'd like to connect that, and I think the disconnect between uh, why we're even talking about this today um, is probably the same reason that every generation talks about it. There's always a disconnect between the abstraction of drawing architecture, building it, and the final form. And I think quite potentially almost, dare I say, a pretty large proportion of us don't understand materials. And that disconnect allows us to have these sort of debates and feel that there is no narrative to architecture. Now, first of all, all of us should be able to read any architecture, including the architecture we just, just suggested, the rapacious developer. If you see one of those buildings, staring at it from the other side of the street, reading it, how it's put together, what it's put together with, whether it's stretcher bond or something else, the types of windows they've used, where they've placed those windows, how big they are, we're able to read that as professional architects on the whole. That building has a narrative. Now, we can set aside the idea that some people use narrative for various pretentious reasons, whether it's Giants Causeway or elsewhere, but all building has a narrative in that sense, so let's define narrative in that way. Uh, but, so se setting aside narrative, setting aside the idea of uh, authenticity, whether you're an idealistic architect with some sort of vision and statements or interested in the tectonic, I think the reason we always have this discussion is that uh, not a lot of us understand that you can, you know, all buildings have to be made of something. And if, you, if you're an architect who abstracts in drawings and not really interested in the materials they're made of, it's still going to be made of something. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have, uh, uh, you're ignoring, uh, you're, you're not an ideal, uh, you're not interested in the ideals of the tectonic. It just means you're ultimately making yourself illiterate. You can't read buildings. You can't compose buildings, even in the simplest sense. And that doesn't necessarily, it's not a moral, uh, I don't want to turn it into a moral um, um, uh, discussion. It's much more common sense, intelligent method of building. Why the hell should you use seven components to put something together when actually only three will do? And it might mean it's aesthetically better. Certainly a client it might be pleased because it's cheaper and greener and all the rest of it combine all those. But if you've got any nous in what you're doing, any training, it would be the more intelligent thing to do. So that simplicity, I'm interested in that, because is that, are you saying that simplicity is almost an antidote, or partly an antidote to... It's a byproduct of understanding your, um, understanding the vocabulary. The vocabulary, we're talking about language and narrative and all the rest of it, the vocabulary is those building blocks, literally what you make your building out of. Yeah. You know, God knows how many times we've had to tackle um, ideas that have been imposed on us where you're looking at it and thinking that's at least seven, 15 components to make something where, you know, I will hold up my hand and say, 
It's not, I'm, I'm not driven by ideals. I'm driven by pure laziness. I don't want to draw those 15 bits. I don't want to redraw them several times every time somebody moves a door or window. If I can make them out of three, blimey, why not? Yeah. I'm interested in Joe's views on this because she mentioned the complexity of the process as it now stands and the amount of stakeholders as one of the reasons that it's difficult to uh, deliver exactly what you promised at the beginning as an architect. So if, if somebody can supply Joe with a mic, thanks. Is that working? Okay. Um, I'm going to be very honest. I'm a businesswoman first before being an architect. Um, and actually, in a way, what you're talking about of stripping it down to three materials and, and the simplest form, some of the most beautiful architecture in the world is simply made of one or two or three materials. Actually, I think the less materials, the better. All architecture is subjective. One man's sort of beauty is, is something else. And architects actually also need to remember that they have probably one of the best jobs in the world. You get to use somebody else's money to design something that you think is beautiful or correct or appropriate in whichever way. Um, and when I, you know, all, I've got two great friends here from university and we all studied together and, and everyone knew at university I was commercial. You know, I was about how I'm going to pass the course, what I'm going to do. I never worried too much about, you know, being the next great architect. Peer-to-peer -peer recognition for me is, is pretty low down the agenda. I really wanted to go out and work for the most big, famous architects in the world. You know, I'm very honest. I went to Foster's and I went to Rogers, spent many years there, and then it suited me in life to set up my own business because I had small children. And we grew that practice, and we've grown pretty well, and, and, and we're now doing 500-unit schemes. And the clear vision for us really has been to move into build to rent because there is more honesty in that relationship with the developer. Most of our work is fast-forward. It's, it's, it's work that develops from one project to the second to the third. And the reality is that they have an inherent trust in what we're doing. But I think, you know, AHMM are doing a lot in the built-to-rent space as well. And ultimately, our clients now want to own and operate their buildings for the next 60 years. They're institutionally funded. And so their investment in the team and the vision and the people at the beginning is very important. Some might say I'm a great architect. Some might say I'm not. I'll probably go towards the uh, latter. But we have amazing architects in our business, and some of them are very focused on design. Some are very focused on placemaking. Some of them understand the commerciality as well as I do, that we do work for our clients because they pay our bills. And in fact, we undercut each other every day, right down to the lowest point, in order to please our clients. You know, as architects, we are not 100% honest. Are we liars? No. We're doing the best we can in a difficult environment. Materiality is, is one thing, but it, it's, it's actually irrelevant in the, in, in the profession and the future of how we go forward. You know, we are a service provider, and we are no longer, you know, the person who has the ability to dictate what the built form will be, has the ability to dictate what it will eventually look like. Because value engineering, I think anybody in this room will know that value engineering now starts before we even submit planning. And so what we have to do really is we have to understand the terms in which we work and then with those as our new sets of parameters, not, not simply materials or how many or how little, actually then see that as one of the great parameters to forge through and create the best designs possible, the most amazing placemaking, while understanding all those different stakeholders and those forces. And do you ever talk in terms, when you're talking to your clients or stakeholders, do you ever talk in terms of the building's narrative or story 
in so, the way that Sean so and we do, Amanda So we do, once about. we've had successful delivery of schemes and we've shown very viable schemes, um, and, and that's why we like these longer-term relationships with people who do multiple offering and they keep and retain and rent their buildings out, whether they're renting a flexible workspace, whether they're renting flats, whether it's a hotel, whether it's service departments, we like that built-to-rent space because you ultimately your client, your investors, are there for the long term and they want to forge those relationships and create spaces that people want to live and work in now but also in the future. It's in their interest as opposed to Barclay or Tony Pidgeley. You know, we've had mega arguments about this, which is just flip as fast as you can. Um, so, yes, we do talk about that and certainly I don't as much as my team do, but we as an office are incredibly open and having at least 10 architects in most meetings talking about their views and their vision. And we run a, you know, a kind of a sort of design forum every week, which gives younger architects in our practice and, and everyone to talk about it. But we are commercial. We've set up an investment platform alongside. You know, we are funding our developers so that we are co-aligned with them because that gives us the opportunity to create the best schemes we possibly could without juxtaposing okay. against them. Amen. I, I just wanted to pick up on, on the storytelling stuff because with Clark and Well Close, you know, you reference some quite uh, deep... Um, and, and one might say obscure historic references in, in terms of why you've taken certain decisions with the design and the materials and the yeah. structure. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think that people who walk past that building ever get those? I mean, it's in your mind, and you can talk about it in the press, mm -hmm. as you have done, but do you think that... Okay. People walking down the street are going to get that. Can I, can I just park that for a moment? Just for Joe. Uh, um, um, two, two, two things. Um, I think um, it's, for you especially, it, uh, the idea of getting to grips with um, how your building is going to be made is, uh, is a huge advantage because if you have control of clients' funds, uh, you, I mean, this is really for all of us. Uh, the lesson we learned very quickly was that you go out to tender, and without fail, every tender is about 15% over budget, if not 40, sometimes more. Highly embarrassing for the client, highly embarrassing for the design team. Uh, what are they called? Um, value engineering exercises take place, everybody's stripping everything out, ripping out their hair in frustration, and hope within four weeks or so you get to, get to go on site. And actually, you look at the, you look at the final product and you think, all those things that we've stripped out were clearly not fundamental to the built form. Uh, I might have thought they were fundamental to the architecture. I added them. They're little bits and pieces here, like makeup on the building. They've been taken off, but the thing still stands. Uh, and you think, well, blimey, can I actually just design it from first principles so I never get into that position? It's fundamental to the building. Whatever, bear with me. You are ultimately then in control of... So what we tend to do is break up the building into built form packages. Make sure they're all tended well in advance. We understand what the superstructure, what the substructure, what the external um, material is, all the way through, in section as it were, and in plan. So when we are a tender, the price is fixed. So we're in control. We almost don't really need a, a quantity surveyor or project manager to be in charge. It's highly, if all of you can apply that to your practices that you're in, Basic, I don't want to say it makes the, the, project, uh, the project manager come QS uh, redundant, because you do want to use them once you're on site for valuations. But prior to that, it puts you back in the controlling seat, because you know from first principles what your building's made of, what it costs. There will not be a tender car crash. 
You will get it on site, and after that, you can ask the QS to do the valuations on a monthly basis. That puts you back in control. Uh, on the, um, the narrative, you know, do we ever tell interesting narrative stories to stakeholders and clients? Um, okay, so I've defined narrative as, as from, from the most pretentious left field to the most prosaic. Anybody being able to stand across the other side of the road, look at a building and say, you know, all of us can do it. Can you give us that, some examples? Well, I will do. I will, well, okay. I mean, I dare I say something across the road that's newish here in the last 15, 20 years where we know that a developer has just put in the smallest windows because he's managed to get a job lot. It's nothing to do with, with um, anybody having composed this. So we can't, we're not standing on the other side of the road saying somebody's badly composed this. We just know a developer's got away with it. Absolutely, uh, you know, uh, got the minimum amount of effort on site, minimal cost, walked away with plenty of money and left a legacy structure here which is just appalling. But we can read that immediately, understand it. It's not a very interesting story. Yeah, it's a very common story. Right on the other end of the extreme, we were undertaking a master plan with a number of other developers. Uh, we were d presenting our scheme in, in slightly prosaic terms to our, um, our architectural colleagues, plus the stakeholders, which were community members. Uh, um, Tonkin Liu were one of the other contributors, and Tonkin started off his uh, presentation with a little boy was walking back home with a packet of seeds. And on that journey, he dropped them. Those seeds were mixed flowers and all the rest of it. And he took, I don't know, you know 10, 15 minutes describing the story. And by the end of it, everybody was utterly convinced. All of us as, as, as uh, people who are members of the community, as well as us as architect stakeholders, in the master plan he then presented, which was effectively driven by landscaping. Uh, and I thought, well, actually, we want to hear stories, if they're any good. If they're any good and they're persuasive. It's not a lie, but it's a story that's before there's any, any physical architecture that's been created. It's just giving you a direction of where it might go. Definitely plenty of pretentious nonsense out there. I wholly ho agree with Sean. Why the hell reference um, uh, Giant's Causeway in Dublin? It's, it's lazy, certainly lazy. Uh, right, Clerkenwell. Uh, okay, so... It was only a matter of time. <laughs> so very originally, we were being very literal. Literally on our plot would have been the piggeries and the stables, servants' quarters, all in half-timber structures. You know, exposed what we call Elizabethan half-timber structures. And we just finished a bookcase in a Golden Lane made of mild steel that held up an entrance hall... Uh, a bridge and a staircase and our engineer had made it of such thick steel I was looking at it thinking but it's just, just incredible the amount of steel used this, this will hold up a building and he said yes it probably would and we said well, okay fine the next uh, opportunity we get we'll deploy it so on this uh, the first Clarkenwell scheme was essentially this giant bookcase using his mathematical model which allowed us to distribute the load path along this bookcase the full height of the building, in plan and in section. So it was quite interesting to look at with some um, cross, uh, cross, um, cross bracing. And yes, visually it sort of alluded to the idea of these half-temper structures. Conservation officer hated it. 
said, uh, I'd rather see you do it in brick. Uh, in fact, his exact words were, in an open doorway, because he couldn't be bothered to sit down, uh, uh, do me, I've read your report, I don't understand it, I don't know why the hell you're using steel, it's not a predominant material in this area, do me and Eric parry on the site, uh, and I'll give you approval. And it was about to disappear out the door, and I said, what the hell do you mean, in Eric Parry? At Finsbury Square, yeah. So off he went, uh, and he said, principally because the church opposite's made of limestone. And we're not, you know, we're not proud. Uh, uh, our case officer said, ignore him, but I sort of said, well, you know, I, I don't mind picking up the challenge of either brick or, or stone. And, uh, you know, let's look at Eric Parry's building. And we realize Eric Parry's building is, you know, this limestone structure with steel rods and all the rest of it. And, uh, yes, the church opposite is limestone. Yes, the Normans who originally built the, um, the abbey on that site built it of limestone, and they introduced limestone to this country and, you know, lots of technologies in limestone that we totally forgotten now. We thought we'd just investigate it. Let's see where it goes to. Nobody, the engineer, the country surveyor, none of them wanted to use stone because they said, look, it hasn't been used for 90 years. Nobody uses it because it wants to collapse. It's too expensive. Uh, and we were happen happened to be working with some French um, guys who, uh, you know, in France, they're the only people that still train people to work in stone. And they said, in France, we call it austerity construction. It's really cheap. Uh, let's, have a, let's have a look at it. We looked at it. It was fairly inexpensive. Uh, yes, there are references as a result of just simply using that material of the context, as it were. But more importantly, at ground level, when you walk past, Yes, there are some things you touch, tactile stuff you see on, as you pass as a pedestrian. To the over-educated like us, some of us might be, some of us may, may not be, to the over-educated like us, we all recognize an ionic column. You know, I've talked to some architects and they make all the connections between an ionic column, a, a scallop shell, the ammonite shell fossils in the, um, in the, in the, in the columns immediately. So as far as they're concerned, they're nice little cryptic clues for the over-educated. For the total layperson, it's, it's perhaps the delight of seeing the squirrel, uh, a squir a squirreling scroll of, um, of an ionic column next to the exact same form of the ammonite shell. So there's, there's levels okay. of okay. narrative and delight as well. Got it, got it. Thank you, Amin. I think I'm compensating for those five minutes. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's fine. Um, I, I want to throw it open to the audience now, but I think Joe Cowan might have just wanted to come back if you would be very brief, Joe, uh, on something Amin said, am I right about this? You've forgotten what it was you were going to say. <laughs> I've slightly forgotten what that one was. But, Don't um, worry, we can come back to it. You, <laughs> probably, probably around the terms of value engineering. I fundamentally disagree with the term value engineering. I don't think you should be value engineering in the first place. Um, I, I can't comment on, on the scrolls. Um, I'm sorry. Um, but I think that um, as architects, we do need to realize what we're doing on day one. And a narrative is not just talking about how you come to the design. We all have narrative. You know, one of my narratives is, you know, we need to get people to make friends in buildings because they're more likely to stay there. Or one of my narratives, of course, we all pitch. has got to be, you know, the concept of we are going to deliver this building viably with a net to gross of this. I mean, these are every single statement we make as an architect at every pinch, pitch point you know, whether we're selling to an architect, whether we're selling to a developer, whether we're selling to a stakeholder, we are always providing a narrative that's suitable to what they want to hear. We are salespeople. We have to sell our vision, our product. And I think you need to be honest about that. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Uh, so who's got questions at this point, please? Sean. 
Sorry, just before I answer, I just need a second to regain the will to live. <laughs> Never have I heard such an illustration of the point I make about architects talking complete shit. It is so depressing. We are reduced to slaves to developers. Some of the biggest, excuse the French, cunts who ever fucking walk the earth. For Christ's sake, Jeremy Corbyn, win the election so we can change this fucking awful crap. For God's sake. Narrative has nothing to do with architecture. I love... I love Amin's building in Clerkenwell Square. I wrote a very impassioned letter to the planning officer about it on Sunday to save it. And, yeah, okay, we can talk about narrative. We can go, yeah, that's a reason for doing something. Okay, but it has nothing to do with the building. The building is a visceral experience. That's what's great about the building. Nobody kind of looks at all these kind of stories. You have to read the AJ to do that. And, um, so you, th- you <laughs> think that architects should that. actually just do the thing and shut up? Let it I speak for itself. I think we need itself. to talk about things. And I found myself very, you know, I was quite surprised. Because, you know, I've known Simon for a long time. And I know we have different views about certain things. But I found myself really agreeing with him that it is ultimately about the stuff that you make. And that the narrative has nothing to do with it. Because, for example... And a, a human being looking at a building is going to understand it in a completely different way to the architect who designed it. They're not, it's not the same thing at all to say, you know, like when, when all the narrative that Amin talks about there, when a person experiences his building, they're not going, oh, look, this is an interesting narrative, isn't it? Oh, God, look at the stories this is telling. No, they're not. They're saying, you know... Yeah, but Amin's point is either, that it's part of, part of his power... And that architects need that power. You know, why not use its, why not use the power process. of storytelling to achieve what you're trying to achieve with the building? Well, if you want to kind of tell, make make some stuff up. But I mean, the, the power I mean has is that well, he's these a good are, are real references, aren't they? You might go, well, that's a bit over the top, yeah, but, but they're like, real it's references. Not, it's not a narrative, though. A reference is not the same thing as a narrative. A narrative is a literary thing that unfolds in time. Okay. That is a foreshortened version of a story that might last thirty years, but it's it's not the same thing. You know, right. we don't we, talk about objects. Yeah. We talk about concepts. All right. I hear you, Sean. But we definitely need some questions from you guys because we've talked long enough. So, question from the audience, please. Just put your hand up. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Um, Do you think maybe it's education? Joe speaks really kind of commercially, uh, which I don't think you get taught at education, whereas Amin speaks more what you're used to kind of part one, part two, is there an educational discussion to be had about maybe it should be more commercially minded? Maybe. Just wait for the mic, if you wouldn't mind, Jay. Where are we? Hello. Yeah, here. Um, I actually think that part of architectural education, you know, Architecture has changed so much. Um, you know, you look at, you know, I had a great privilege of working for Rogers, and if you think from the days of the Pompidou, the two 26-year-olds, one 
an incredible scheme and, and love it or hate it, you know, I mean, and they were really about as true to honesty in architecture with their scheme as you can get if you go back to the literal meaning. But, you know, it has changed. And, and I think that architectural education hasn't. You know, we interview lots of people like all of the other architects in this room do. And there, there does seem to be so much emphasis on the ethereal and the experiential and, and, and things that ultimately you kind of come back, to, you, know, you know, these architects who spent seven years studying, they then arrive in business and they basically bang you're into sort of laying out rooms against a coordinate or doing a door schedule or you, they don't seem to ever have any continuation. And I, I do think that the commercials of real estate, particularly in the UK, need to, needs to factor in some way as part of the course. You know, students seem to be coming out without really being able to build buildings, without really understanding how buildings are funded, and without really understanding... Okay. <laughs> just, a, just an opinion. Okay, just an opinion. Um, but um, I do think... I. So, um, from my I don't opinion, think that's fair, Sean. Let, let, let Joe finish her point. So, from my opinion, I think that some of the investment side needs to be taught. People need to understand who pays for the building, who's going to use the building, and, and how everything comes together. Because ultimately, there's too much paper architecture. You know, there's, there's too much stuff that we design that's great, amazing schemes, but it never becomes viable, it never gets built. And, and in the, the UK, is, you know, it's pretty politically unstable, and, and we've got funders pulling out left, right, and centre got schemes stopping, you know, a lot of great work done by a lot of people who've invested four years don't start on site. And I think that architects just need to understand the parameters that they're working in beyond simply the design and the intent. And, and actually, that as part, I think, gives them interest. I mean, so many people come to interview with us to say we're really interested in the commercial side. We're really interested in, in why you talk about understanding that. It's not because... That's what I think is the only factor. I just think it's one of our parameters. That's what we taught to do, work to parameters. So, yes, in answer to your question, I 100% think that architects should just, just know who pays for their buildings, where it comes from. Because 90% of the time, your developer isn't paying for it. It's a fund that sits behind him, and he's your client. Okay. We... Thank you, Joe. Simon, what's your view on this? Because you spoke at the introduction, and you haven't spoken since. I thought I, did, I thought I did speak. It's obviously so memorable it was forgotten. Um, my view on what? On education? On commerciality? I mean, I think it's pretty simple. If you want to make architecture that's not on paper, which is also architecture, if you want to make architecture in the built form, you need to harness someone else's money. It's fairly obvious. And if you don't, whether that's in education or in the education of life, I mean... To divide that view up, my view is it's the only crazy thing about education is you do it all at the beginning. I mean, why don't you just carry on doing it and, and mix it up a bit? And the trouble with the split between education and practice is education becomes more academic, practice becomes more dreary. If you merge it all up and mix it all up, then I think you're more likely to get an interesting profession. But the reality is, if you're talking about architecture as buildings rather than drawings, and we have an amazing drawing on the wall in the office of Walking City done by Ron Heron, you know, like a moment in time, a vision. Um, if, you if you want to make buildings, you have to understand things like contract and money. You have to understand clients. You have to understand politics. There's nothing wrong with that. Your skill is ultimately finding people who are empathetic to you. You cannot make good buildings with shitty clients. You can find a client without money and make good architecture. Um, 
The point Joe made about people owning buildings does matter. If people own a building, it's pretty simple, they have a long-term interest in it. If they're building to sell, they have a short-term interest in it. So there's some fairly fundamental characteristics that will define your opportunity as an architect to make good or better architecture. So of course, it's just part of the whole story. The ability to manage information, the ability to think about putting products together, the ability to put people in rooms together, the ability to make teams, the ability to inspire people on site to make buildings. It's all part of the role of an architect. That is one of the things architects do very well is kind of lead and engage people when they're on good form. That's what they do very well. And so, you know, commerce is just another part of the equation. How does that tie in with honesty? I've just been honest about it, commerce. Yes, but I'm saying, <laughs> in terms of your communications as an architect, given that commerce... I go with the Jim Sterling view. I don't, you know, whatever conversation I might be having in a review about a project, I'm of the... When I present a project, it's a fairly straightforward story of how that project will be used. I, I don't want to tie myself up with Palladio, but actually his descriptions of the Villa Emo are very similar. It's about the convenience of the farmer at night, getting out of his bedroom, going downstairs and dealing with a horse. He doesn't talk about the whole kind of Renaissance adventure he's on. He talks about the pragmatics of, of his building, the efficiency with which animals can be moved through a space, all those kinds of things. They're actually quite interesting, and they're quite architectural, as are stories. If stories get Amin out of bed and make him think about things, then that's, that's fine. But I you know, agree with that idea that ultimately, it's not what we think, right? It's not, I don't have to give someone a lecture for them to understand the building. People walk past or use a building and they engage with it and they make their own decisions. So anything we do is a prop to our own creativity. But you can't stand around saying, sorry, you can't crit my buildings, I haven't given you a lecture on it. And Lebetkin, who I greatly respected, used to say no one should write a review of a building unless they'd spent a week with the architect. I disagree fundamentally with, with that aspect of Lebetkin. I agree with his use of caryatids, I, I kind of like all that stuff. But the idea that we have to kind of tell people how to understand what we're doing, because they're not clever enough, is, is in Sean's words, bollocks. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Russell. On. Um, I, and this is a discussion that's kind of gone on for time immemorial, hasn't it? But honesty and truth and all the rest of it. And I think I know I, I agree. I mean, I think it's a bit it's a, it's boring discussion. But we talked a little bit about. Oh, thanks. This. Well, no, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's you know, we, we're, all, we're all clearly going to agree to disagree on, on this subject. But I do. I am I am interested in this in this idea of the relationship between the, the there can't be many disciplines where you have this, this schism between the relationship between the person that's playing the, paying the bills, you know, the developer, and then the, the, the wider public, the people that we are engaging with, the people that we're actually designing these buildings for. Because, because actually, you know, we're not really designing them for a, for a, for a developer. It, it might be PRS or something, and they have to have a long-term interest. But then it all becomes about efficiencies and corridors and all the rest of it. Um, you know, I, how, how do we... Um, this discussion about how, how as, uh, as architect, we can reconcile that discussion around what our, our responsibility to a client, the, the bill pay, pays the invoice at the end of the month, and that the wider public is, 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 is far more interesting. And, and I just come back to your earlier point, you mentioned about this, this sort of post-truth uh, environment that we now live in. 
And in a way, I, you know, how, how does that, my question is, how does that relate to the buildings that we present? I mean, we're seeing a lot of um, you know, like the fundamentals talks that recently about this, uh, about create streets and, and, and this aesthetic approach to buildings that people like detail, they like beauty and they like, you know, the traditional symmetrical buildings and all this sort of stuff. But we all know that to, design, to build one of those buildings today using today's building technology, it's bricks that are 25 mil thick and it's sitting on a steel frame and there's tons of stuff behind it to hold it all up. Where does that sit in this sort of post-truth world? Do we need to be more, um, more truthful uh, in order to you know, not tell lies about the buildings we're creating? Steve. Yeah, I just want to add to that. Because um, one, one of the um, things about doing this talk was to actually try to imagine what merits dishonest approaches and and uh, ways of working and um, ways of getting funding and ways of explaining your way through the planning system is, 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 is being dishonest a ways to an end? You know, is it, are, 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 are all architects or, or developers, are, those, are we always having to sort of tell lies yes. just to get by, you know? And then it's, then it's kind of masked in a kind of storytelling the storytelling is about a verbal thing which maybe changes the way that, that, that you perceive something. There's a narrative thing which I don't want to get into here because I think it's about authorship almost and the narrative, the use of narrative. I agree with Sean in, in many ways. Um, but going back to maybe an example, and I would go back to Amin's um, development in Clerkenwell Close. I agree with Sean. I would fully support that building. It's a wonderful building. But I think the real story there is about how to really hammer home the point that this is a good bit of architecture and the 22-year-old conservation officer doesn't know what they're talking about. Now, regardless of what, what kind of thing you're up against, you've got to lie and cheat and pull whatever trick possible to make that work, whether it's PR or whether it's design or whether it's a politic thing, I just think you have to really go for it and stick up for yourself as an architect. So I think you get that with developers. So dishonesty, does, too. dishonesty comes with the territory. You're kind of agreeing with Sean. Well, that maybe it's not such a negative thing. I mean, I, I, I was reflecting on this just before you come in, Amin. I was reflecting on this because I wrote a piece uh, a few months ago about concrete and what a damaging material cement is in terms of embodied carbon, 8% of worldwide carbon emissions. And one of the most interesting quotes was actually from a collaborator of Amin's, uh, I think it's Steve Webb of Webb Yates. That's right, yeah. And he said um, that he felt a lot of architects and engineers had this kind of dishonest but maybe sort of uh, really being in a state of denial, I suppose, that they see themselves as sustainable because they might be vegan, they might avoid beef, they might ride a bike to work, um, they live in London, which you know is better than all the car journeys you get if you live uh, in the countryside, and yet they'd go in and design a steel or concrete frame building, a huge building, and they would be in complete denial about what that represented in terms of a climate emergency. And that to me did feel like, yeah, Sean's got a point, I'm coming from a different angle, but he's got a point. 
And that's something that the architects have been pushed into. It's almost crept up on them without them necessarily noticing it or acknowledging it. And engineers, yeah. Well, it well <laughs> come in on this. Engineers. Who'd like to Who'd like to pick that up? Maybe I'm in. Hello. Being honest, why did you only interrupt the woman? and no one else when you thought she was wrong? I think you should wait your turn when a woman's speaking, especially when she's the only one on the panel. Um. Okay, let's get back on track. I'm in. All right. Uh, right. Well, en engineers and QSs are working together quite blindly, uh, and it's us. It's our fault as architects. I don't, wouldn't say most architects are dishonest as a result of using steel. They're just driven to it. And it's, uh, it comes back to my point that I don't think any of us are actually arguing. That we're sort of ac accidentally arguing against one another. Sean, because he's primarily an academic now. Um, others because they're principally uh, representing um, uh, funds. Um, <laughs> I, I would suggest all of us are pretty much saying the same thing. The, the difference is that uh, maybe 150 years ago, uh, as a profession, we would bestride all sides of it. How many of us are actually in control of the, uh, of, of the structure or even the cost of it? Because the structure and the cost of it is, is what drives that decision. And it can change from month to month or year to year. The QS will tell the, the, the engineer, use concrete instead of steel. The architect will then just have to coordinate that with the plans and elevations they've already drawn. Not from a fundamental uh, level. Not from something they've already decided on very early on. I mean, how perverse is it that architects are using structural materials such as stone and brick to hold up a building, but they don't use it to hold up a building, they actually end up using an engineer to make that structure be held up, yeah? It's bizarre, it's completely perverse, so as a team... But isn't that just like wallpaper, you know, it's a decoration? Well, of, course, of course it is like wallpaper, but if you wanna, if you're, if you've got any brains about you, then why not use a lightweight, pretend stone or brick as wallpaper? Yeah, that's fine, but no. I've, we're having to work with a building that's only 10 years old, uh, and uh, there, giant bits of cantilever are holding up block work and brick uh, uh, that are you know, two, two floors in the air for another few stories upwards. And you think, who the hell designed this nonsense? Yeah? It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, and it's because we draw and others then dictate for us. Now, that's just stupidity. Yeah, that's just illiteracy in the vocabulary of how you put things together. Uh, um, so it's a loss of function and a loss it's of a, it's, skills. It's just, yes, certainly a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an inevitable... 
you know, there's, a, there's an inevitable disconnect in the education without, 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 you know, Joe's correct in that. Sean's correct. There's nothing wrong with our education system apart from that, yeah? Now, I'm not here to, I don't think in those years that we're being educated, we should spend a year doing structure and all the rest of it. It's, it's a bit boring. Sean is saying he didn't say that. Well, he's saying that Joe, Joe, Joe is misinformed that Clark, 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 that we don't get taught about who the hell funds our buildings, who the, how the hell buildings are held up and all the rest of it. Not enough of it that we consciously come out and are aware of it. Okay, I mean, sure. I hold up my hand up and I, I wasn't aware of any of that when I graduated. Sure. Well, my apologies for being strident, but I get very annoyed with practitioners who say that architectural education does not prefer, uh, prepare um, architect, young architects for practice. It's simply not true. It's absolutely not true. Every single one of my students is employed every year and is sought after by the very best practices. And they do learn about commercial things. A lot of them are very, very, very savvy, much savvier than me in terms of what's going on in the world, how to use technology, how to use social media, how to set up their own practices. And young architectural students are actually being incredibly inventive about the way they think about architectural practice. A lot of them are setting up um, things there. Well, somebody just did in this, in this discussion. <laughs> No, somebody, I'm sorry, with respect, Joe said architects are, young architectural students are unprepared for practice and they don't know anything about the commercial. That's what she said. I'm sorry, they were the words she used. I'm <laughs> well, they do have knowledge. They do have, most, of my, most of my students are working two or three days a week in a okay, practice. But, they know this But we've stuff. all heard the stories from other practices. Um, I've been writing about architecture for 15 years, and I've heard just countless stories about practices complaining that, you know, new yeah, joiners are what, unprepared. What I wanted just to just before... I just say, I, I, I'm going to go with Sean on this one. This idea of the education to turn out fodder for practice. The practices who complain probably too stupid to teach people. You know, part of the role of a practice, if it's any good, is to develop people, staff, careers, pay them money, all those kinds of stuff that a lot of great practices don't do. Yeah, so if, 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 practice, if, practice, if practices... Well, then I have to say, those are probably dumb practices because actually most students, certainly the ones we come across, are clever, bright... Now, they may not know about certain things, but they will pick it up incredibly quickly. And why should they? I don't know about loads of things. I mean, I, don't, I have no idea. They know a lot more than I do about contract. Um, so I don't think we should get this thing into a thing about education and, and, and practice and honesty and dishonesty. But I would agree with Sean. The idea that we're turning out people who are suitable to go into miserable firms and stick bricks on the wall in bad detailing isn't really the future. You want people to come in who are critical, smart, intelligent, open-minded, and they learn, not because they learn from us, because that's all a good architect does, is learn for all their working lives. Everything they do, walking down the street, meeting someone, going to their flat, noise, acoustics, cars, energy, whatever it might be, it's all about learning. 
Okay, more questions from the floor? Or from the practice hosting? This is another standing up for the students, actually. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to say this now because I think it's worth Yeah, saying. about honesty. So, um, please, honesty. It will be about honesty, Thank but you. it's also worth saying that I think we're past all of this, that um, a lot of the students now have learnt how to build. Um, and it's sort of obviously dependent on school, but they know how to fabricate. And that is the world we're in now, that actually they have segued the third party into their own, you know, they take it on themselves. So um, I, think it's, I think it's right in some, some senses to say students are unprepared, possibly for the contractual elements and, and let's say the post part three things, but they are now teaching us a lot about taking on the role of the architect and building and literally being the builder. Um, sorry, like BC. I, I don't know BC architects, but yeah, I think we're in a very pluralistic time. But that's you know that's something about saying there is there is honesty to material, which I don't really believe anymore. I think it's more about honesty to idea. You know, you go to somewhere like Port Merion and, um, and, and actually just really revel in the place. And that is pretty much staged there. So I suppose it's just about being honest to a particular idea. And maybe that's much, much, much more about integrity rather than honesty. Um, that's okay, another question from the bar. I guess just in response to some of the points that have been made earlier, um, I have to say I completely agree with Simon. I think education is for, I guess, making people think about architecture and then you learn a lot of things when you're in practice. And that goes back to a point you made earlier about why can't learning continue? Why does it all have to be in the beginning? Um, I think what this discussion showed is how big a rift there is between academia and practice. And perhaps we shouldn't talk about dishonesty purely through verbal means, I think. Um, maybe that's, in the way we speak about architecture, that's how different academia and practice are in expressing themselves. But actually, I mean, I, I think architecture as a kind of communicative practice, we're not restricted to just words. We have so many other tools at our disposal. And I'm surprised that we haven't talked about kind of other forms through which we express architecture. Well, images, we've not really yeah, got onto images and um, how, you know, the image that wins planning permission can look really nothing like what is delivered. That's always intrigued me. Um, not just CGI's, but other, you know, artists' impressions. Um, Hugh. That's a good point, but I just wanted to go on something that's just sure. caught my mind. Is about, uh, we're talking about the architect in the context of a service provider of a certain section of society, which is developers and the money behind buildings. Part of our education, surely, in the history of architecture, is about the service that architecture provides to society as a whole, irrespective of income and means. And I think what seems to be the case from the conversation is that we're talking about it in a very narrow terms. And if we're, I, I agree in some ways wholeheartedly with what's been said in the sense that, I mean, it took, it's taken uh, us a long time to realise that maybe what we need to do as architects is step outside 
being um, the service provider in the role of architect and waiting for those jobs to come down the pipeline. And if you're interested in providing for society and the service to society rather than developers, um, then which to me seems a more noble cause, then maybe architects need to step into the breach, understand commercial reality, and then form the financial model by which they can provide things for a broader base of society yeah. rather than pure profiteering, which, 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 which most architects do, with an air of nobility. Yeah, and I don't know how much architects pay attention to these things, but I know that both the RIBA and ARB codes of conduct have one of you know have that in there about architects' obligation to the wider world and the environment. But yeah, I mean, has anyone I think, ever read I think, those I, things? I think Probably a lot not. of the things about you know the classic argument about materiality and architectural honesty is an irrelevance to most people in their daily lives. I mean, you know, what does it mean to somebody living on a council estate? At the end of the day, what they're interested in is the quality of the space they live in, and what's offered. And I think the offer architecturally has become focused into a a service provider for a certain model of delivery of buildings. Now, I know that's a bigger issue in terms of state, you know, the lack of state provision of, say, housing. But, better uh, but should architects not lobby for that more as more of an activist than a service link, provider? Better links and better understanding of the end user, including things like how the building performs over time, not just delivering it and then forgetting about it. Surely that would aid honesty. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I went to a constructivist show in the RA a couple of years ago, and it was about sort of you know the, those kind of modernist ideals of light and space, and how you would tie those into health and the general welfare of the population. And if you talk about general welfare of the population, what are most architects doing in their day-to-day -day existence? If we're honest, what are 99% of buildings doing? They're enforcing uh, a sort of a view, in a way, I think, rather than. Um, sort of liberating, and that's that's an issue I think that architectural history maybe throw up against the modern age. Thank you, Russell. We are going to wrap up soon, but if you've got questions, please put your hands well, up. I, I think that's no, that's a really interesting point, and, and actually, you know, increasingly I think honesty is massively overrated. And I, I who said at the beginning that architects are, are all liars? Somebody, Sean. Sure, Sean. And I think that's absolutely right. I find myself lying to everyone, lying to the client, lying to the planners, lying to <laughs> because. And the reality is that we are the only ones that give a shit. Not always, but mostly, you're the only ones that give a shit about the quality of the output. There are some great clients out there, you know. Who really care about the projects that they're, you know, the, the buildings that they're delivering or we're delivering for? So you're them. lying with the noblest but, of intentions. But, with the noblest of intentions, because we feel like, you know, in order to, in order to deliver some quality down the line, oh, it needs to be of this certain material in order to satisfy the planners. We'll say to the client, or we need to tell the, you know, the the, the, the planners it will look like this CGI or whatever it is, in order to uh, advance the things that we are interested in, which is delivering buildings and places of quality. And quite often, those are not the primary objectives of the people that we're working for. Does the panel agree about that? Anyone uh, want to say that they lie day in, day out? Yeah, I'll try to be quite quick as a non-architect, as an actual planning officer. Uh, I've been talking... Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I love all these debates about planning officer being really bothered by materials because this is absolutely not what I look at. And I think we all go about this, what, do you, what does the end user want, but we know very well what most people want. Most people want a step-free access to a building. Most people want natural daylight. Most people, uh, you know, daylight in architecture is actually really not rocket science. And I think, I, I do agree that most people don't really look at materiality 
and rhythm of fenestration and all of that. And for me, it's been a bit of a shame tonight that we've been talking so much about the aesthetics and not so much about the quality and design standards and spatial standards. Uh, and I think for me, Honest in Architecture is, is pushing for better um, spatial standards. And it's something that I find very often in schemes. We, we always, I mean, I, I see so many schemes where architects are just trying to meet minimum requirements and explaining that that's design quality, not actually acknowledging that these are minimum standards, for instance. Um, yeah, so that was, that was my, my um, I think dishonesty comes about maybe talking about the aesthetics a little too much and not so much about what kind of environment we actually create and also all this thing about we don't know what end users want. Yes, we know. People want flexibility, people want versatility and, and buildings that stay, not buildings that are being replaced and this kind of chaotic development-led system of ours. So, yeah. But isn't that part well, of the problem yeah. that architects get into when they say, oh, we know what the public want, we're not even going to bother talking to this local community because we know what they want. I mean, that's just a, a recipe for problems and dishonesty, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> well, I wanted to respond to Russell, better like a race to the bottom here. I lied today to a client, <clears throat> and it wasn't for a noble cause. It was, you know, my resource is a bit thin right now, and I need to like path off the client for their stage, uh, you know, five, right, whatever stage, whatever they've been, you know, for a couple of weeks. And so I came up with oh, do you know, it's better that we put in for building regs and just wait for the plan check to come back because then going to tender, it'll be a much more solid approach. But really, I was just trying to, you know, fight fires and, you know, not lose clients and keep everyone happy. But I, I kind of lied because I think there's a better way. You know, you can obviously do plan checks or, you know, do, do building regs as you go along, right? So, pardon? Well, this is it. This is, this is me doing it. But I get, what I'm trying to do is say... <laughs> what I'm trying to do is say, look, there's a lot of us is, trying is to push... It's a bit more private than this. But. We're trying to push... Uh, like uh, Russell was saying, you know, there's a, like a noble reason why we might lie. Well, let's be honest a little bit. We're human, first and foremost, and most humans, if not all, lie for their own benefit, to avoid shame or to get some benefit, other benefit. And you know, I'm, you know, we're all one of them. We should just be a bit honest about it. <laughs> but what, what do people think is the public perception of architects and their honesty? Because uh, I know that as a journalist, I'm right down at the very bottom uh, in terms of reputation, probably somewhere, hopefully, above estate agents, but pretty, pretty low down on that list. Um, so what do people think about how the public sees architects in this regard? Do they think, you know, the, the architect's a pretty honest broker, really. They're going to... No. <laughs> Have you had enough, enough drink now to make a point? <laughs> public don't give a shit, sadly. Um, but the public does have they, perceptions they, they about... They have perception, and they might look up slightly and think, wow, actually, that's a new building. That's quite interesting. They only tend to read, majority tend to read what's in the press, and we're not in the press enough. The biggest thing that happened to us as young architects back in the 80s was that they had an architect on Brookside, and he died of a heroin overdose. And that was the biggest <laughs> deal. 
You know, it was amazing because I, I remember saying in my part three, what's the problem with architects? We're not in the news enough. No one knows about architects. And I said, well, they should, they should be more in the media. We should be more mediated. We should stop being so fucking pretentious and actually going out there and trying to, you know, be a bit more real with the public. But even, even now, the public don't give a shit because generally the nation doesn't give a shit about us. You go over abroad, you go to the EU, and we're treated like artists over here. They don't give a shit. You know, and I live in the East End here. Well, I've lived here for ages. You know, I work here. They don't. They go, oh, great, nice job, lots of money. Do you have a nice car? That's, that's the first thing they say, not what's your best building. Anyone so, else on truth. that? Thank you. Anyone else on that question of architects and honesty and public perception? Um, yeah, so can I say something? Yeah, please do. Uh, right, so um, I'm thick as a brick, but, and um, so I would like to say thank you very much. I've heard a lot of interesting things tonight, especially some very rude words which are great in this current climate sort of language. And um, the point about object and Karl Marx, who I think was actually quite wrong about some things, because he said, we lived in a world where capitalism or the attainment of capital necessitates that we are all fundamentally dishonest in all our relationships, including marriage, uh, uh, politics, infects everything. So I hear a lot of professionals, and when I use the word professional, I would like people to think of what was the first profession. And I would also like them to think of the word amateur and what that means. Um, <clears throat> so I was getting to a point. Uh, so I've heard a lot of despondent language here about uh, how dishonest everybody is. And it's kind of like, in a bit like listening to a bit of a bunch of city bankers or um, MTV Grammy Award winning pop stars about what lies and how fake they are, but oh, isn't it great because we're rolling in a Rolls Royce. Um, but, um, but without the Rolls Royce. But without the Rolls Royce here, perhaps, but not for Richard Rogers. I don't know, I've never met him. But um, what was I saying? Um, it, it, is truth at all important these days? I mean, I grew up uh, with a hated woman called Margaret Thatcher. And then we got Tony Blair, who I thought could talk for five hours, and you would just say, yes, I agree with you, because you didn't really understand anything he said, but he just said it in a certain way that it sounded good, you know, and it sounded like he stood up for truth. He was a bit of a crusader and stuff. Um, so obviously everyone wants to be truthful in some way. Um, so it's kind of sad that people have resigned themselves to being dishonest. But Karl Marx, who I'm not a socialist or a communist or anything, I mean, he would say, you know, if you want to make the world a better place, and not just Karl Marx, because uh, this fictional figure called Jesus as well, you know, okay. truth and things. Um, truth was meant to be important, and it was meant to be, you know, the seeking of truth, actually. Galileo, even though he went against religion, it was his seeking of truth that came to his inventions. So is truth actually something we just laugh at and say, oh, stick it in the box? Or is there uh, space somewhere? I don't think anyone's saying we should laugh at it. Or is there more, should, perhaps, uh, there, is, it, is there enough? That's the question. Is there enough? Or, or, and is it, if there isn't, is it possible for there to be more space for architecture that is, is maybe, uh, would you use the word idealistic, but is thinking forward and is... 
okay. detached from the financial interest. Thank you. Uh, do any of the panel want to come back on that, or should I say one last question from the audience? Unless the panel wants to come back on that particular point about self-flagellation. I just want to say one thing. It's quite extraordinary, this word developer that's bandied about. Everyone in this room cares about architecture in one form or another. And everyone in this room probably goes to hunt out clients who they want to work with. And this kind of incredible kind of generality and negativity. Most architecture has never been made by architects. We haven't got a God-given right to make it. And of course, we want to find people who commission us and pay us to do something. And, you know, the failing is, is on our side when we can't do that. And there's no point bleating on about the world's not giving us the right chance and there are these terrible people called developers and then you take the money from their shitty architects. There's a lot of crappy architects who do bad architecture and they're qualified, they've studied. It's up to each of us individually and it's pretty tough. But to get in there and if we, if we kind of... I think it's great, this event. Love the restaurant, love the food. But the idea of all these architects getting together and just saying how crap the world is because developers are useless and we're the only people who really have a moral conscience. It's absolute rubbish. And it begins the, the end of the profession because we'll all retreat designing art galleries in East London and large global practices will shit out housing blocks and we'll say they're terrible but we didn't want to dirty our hands. I just think it's... What we say in a room like this is not how we all think when we're outside this room. And we should get out of that kind of terribly turgid groupthink. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So when, when, do you, when do we train people to not think like that? You, you were saying that um, you know, we're, we, we're responsible for training. I mean, we certainly do it to the people that come in our practice. But I think, you're, I think coming back to the education bit, I wouldn't change the education I had, but we certainly celebrated the idea that you somehow slightly take the piss out of your clients. There's plenty of lovely anecdotes our theoreticians and historians will tell us about Frank Lloyd Wright and everybody else slightly taking the piss out of our clients. You slightly disrespect them. You certainly have no, no respect for developers until, yes, one day you learn while you're in practice, blimey. 99% of all construction in this country that we're working on, how many of us are actually working on solely private houses or art galleries? Almost none of us, which basically means that all of it's done by developers. And when do we get to respect them? As you say, in this room, we're currently at the wrong end of the discussion. But when would you suggest? Hugh. <laughs> I disagree a little bit with Simon because that's not the point of this debate. I agree with you, actually, that what, exactly what you've just said is the point of the debate. But my point that I made earlier was that I think architects, if you deal with commercial reality and the way buildings are delivered, then you need to step up to the plate and say, is it good enough that you are a servant of values that you don't subscribe to as an individual? My argument is architects are seen as subscribers to values that are not about the welfare of people across a broad spectrum of society. So if you, out of your education, we were all taught pretty much the same kind of thing, that there was a social component to architecture. It is not about serving developers who have a particular angle on buildings. And therefore, for my money, I would say architects should get real with the commercial reality of the age, but transform their skill set into that and become the developer. Yeah, I, I mean, just so to, to agree to agree to disagree, my, 
my worry about developers is, is I know plenty of architects I work for who've become developers, and then they get involved in a financial transaction, and it's banks and finance. They're not, so all they're doing is people borrowing money and making something happen, as is the public sector. They are people borrowing money, and I would say in our public sector work, there are even fewer champions. And my point at the very beginning about the you know, 1960s, when most architects worked in the public sector, on one level, fabulous. On another level, some rather large mistakes made, despite the very best will of the architects, you know, who were completely committed to what they were doing. So I'm just saying, having a, a kind of moral... I think we all have an obligation to design good buildings that last well. We have to come up with stories to tell to clients about that idea of longevity and value. So actually, someone owning a building does matter, because if it matters, you can say, well, actually, if you do that better, you won't have to maintain it in 10 years. So all that PFI shit that's been criticised, theoretically, it's actually a good model. Because the person who builds the building is responsible for running it. Whereas the worst kind of housing in the heroin-based you know, Brookside, they build, they leave, and they're not involved in it. But, you know, I think, as an architect, you have responsibility to make good architecture in the broadest possible sense. That's urban planning, you know, front doors, disability, regs, light, sound, acoustics, flexibility over time. All those things that you have to think about. But the idea that we are the moral code for that, all building is a financial transaction. No, it's not about moral code. It's, it's about values in terms of what those buildings are doing in the end game, right? A three-bedroom flat in this area at 750 clearly has a, an agenda which has nothing to do with need. What? It's the well, not a three-bed, a two-bed, sorry. I got it. The, bed, the bedage wrong. Um, but my point is this, is that you kind of... It's about... Uh, Where's the activism to change something in the sense of the commer its commercial value? Commercial value has become the, the god that we all bow down to as a society generally. Where are the other values? That's my point. And I think architecture is part of a problem that fails people. It's shown to fail people. Even at the level now it, it affects, you know, God forbid it affects middle class people who are on decent professional wages and they can't afford things to live in. So there's a, gen there's a shift generationally between our our parents onwards. And I, I would just ask the question, isn't it the role of the architect to give commercial... I, know I agree with the point about commercial reality, but shouldn't we get commercially real to make the change as activists? Because we don't fully... Do we fully buy into what so, a developer's values are as architects? Is that what we're doing? Is that the role of the architect? That's my question, I suppose. Good, good point. And also, what about admitting mistakes? I find architects very, very, very rarely admit mistakes. You know, virtually every building you design does not perform as you say it's going to design, uh, uh, perform as, as you say it will. Um, it often doesn't look like you said it would in the planning process. But I never hear architects saying, oh, we fucked that up, you know, royally. Sean. Sure. I just want to say, as somebody who built my own house, I not only admitted my mistakes, I lived with them <laughs> for years. But admitting mistakes is, is part of honesty, isn't it? Saying uh, yeah, of course. I mean, I, my favourite one on this in terms of, like, uh, is, is the, uh, uh, the electrical plug sockets. In all my 25-year careers, I've never managed to put them in the right place. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want, I'm not trying to get any more confessions. Um, 
I don't think there's time for that, otherwise we'd be here all night. Yeah. Um, Nick, Nick's Negroni talk on uh, August the 29th is about failure in architecture. Excellent. So we can, we, we can follow up the, the, the electrical socket positions. Yeah, that was all planned. Um, I, I had that, that in my Thank mind you. as I was saying that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that was a, a good discussion, I think. Boring at times, but interesting at other times. Um, so thank you very much, and, and thanks to Fourth Space for hosting us. Thanks to the panel. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thank you.